Lord, we're thankful for all these things we've been talking about, the songs we've been singing, uh, the events upcoming, the people who are here. But mostly, Lord, we need you. We need a sense of your presence. And we need, Lord, your power to be, uh, to be poured out upon this service, not only upon this service, but upon the services of every church that's meeting in Loosedale today and churches wherever they are. God, we need your power. That's, that's what we need. And we ask for it humbly in Jesus' name. A couple of weeks ago, our deacons had a meeting, and we had some discussion in our deacons' meeting about how we're going to reach this community. How are we going to be effective? How will we be relevant in this community in the 21st century? Well, last Sunday, we began looking at the book of Romans, and as you can see, I've called Romans Paul's letter to the 21st century. That's a little illogical if you think about it, because obviously, Paul wrote his letter, his book, the book of Romans to people who were living in the first century. And how is it possible for a letter written to the first century to be applicable or relevant in the 21st century? And the title of the message today is, Is the Gospel Relevant? That's the question that we're going to try to answer. Well, one of the things we said, one of the reasons we said that the book of Romans was relevant uh, for today is because Ro the Roman culture is really a lot like our own. Uh, our culture basically is a mirror image of Rome. In Rome, Rome was a melting pot, as you know. America is the great, we call it the great American melting pot, where people from many cultures come together. Uh, e pluribus unum, I guess I pronounced that right, out of many, one, out of a lot of cultures, we've become one culture. Well, in Rome, people had come, they they came together and they embraced philosophy. They actually worshipped philosophy and they worshipped mythical gods and goddesses and they worshipped art and they worshipped beauty and they worshipped worship sexuality and they worshipped athletics. Sounds a lot like our culture. That's why I think Romans is Paul's letter to the 21st century. And as we unfold the book of Romans, you're going to see that. So our first question this morning needs to be how do we reach modern culture. What do we do? That's what our deacons were asking. So what should we do? Well, here is Paul in the book of Romans preaching as he always did. He, he was unapologetic. He preached to philosophers. He preached to architects. He preached to athletes. He preached to generals and he preached to kings. Now, when Paul spoke to these people, did he speak to them as someone from their distant past? Absolutely not. Paul spoke to them as their contemporary, he spoke to them as a citizen of Rome who was in step with culture, but he was also in step with God. Now, how are we going to reach this community? Well, obviously, we're not going to reach this community if we are out of step with God. And let's say that a church can be out of step with God. We can become static and stagnant. That's also true of an individual. My illustration of that comes from a moment out of the life of some of the disciples of Jesus, not the 12 disciples, but some of the 12. The Bible says of them in John chapter 6, verse 66, that a moment came when they heard what Jesus was saying and they decided they, they, they didn't like it, they weren't comfortable with it. And so John 6, 66 says simply, from that time they went back and they walked no more 
with him. That can happen to an individual, a group of individuals. It can certainly happen to a church if we don't stay connected with what God is doing and stay in step with God. You probably agree with that. But here is something you may not agree with. What God was doing in 1950 or 1960 or even 1980 is not what God is doing in 2022. Connect yourself to 1950 and you will not reach people in 2022. Let me give you an illustration. Let's go back 70 years. What was God doing in 1950? Well, one of the things that we know that God was doing, he was working through a young man whose name was Billy Graham. And what was Billy Graham doing? Billy Graham was preaching in tents. He was preaching in a tent in Los Angeles. He he uh, preached in stadiums. Later, he preached on television. Uh, Billy Graham preached to kings and queens and presidents and world leaders. He took advantage of the culture. He was a citizen of the culture. But you will find as the years went by, Billy Graham adapted himself in his meetings and his music so that he was always relevant. Now, I want to tell you the passion of my heart uh, has always been to be relevant. I know that preachers have started. I don't have on blue jeans today. I know that preachers have started wearing blue jeans so that they could be relevant. I was wearing blue jeans uh, 40 years ago as a pastor just because I wanted to be normal. I didn't want to look like a pastor when I walked up somewhere. I didn't want people to think, well, there's that pastor. I wanted to be a pastor in disguise. I wanted to be relevant wherever I went. I know I look more the part now than I used to. Well, that just happens to you along the way. But I still want to be relevant. I want the message to be relevant. I want God's word to be relevant in the lives of people. I want them to see that God is relevant and what he has to say is practical and needful for them. But I need to be able to communicate with them. I need to find a, a way that I can, can get their attention and I can, I can talk to them. And I want them to know that God is not stagnant or stagnant, nor is his word. His word is living and active and relevant. So just look at Paul before we get to the book of Romans. Was Paul stagnant and static in his methods or was he adaptable? Well, just hear Paul from his own words. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said, To the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might reach the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might be a fellow partaker with it. Paul was not static or stagnant in his method. His approach was always tailor-made for those to whom he preached. And while his method might be different, a little different from culture to culture, his message was always the gospel. Do we need to adapt the gospel? We asked that question last week. Do we need to dress it up or dress it down or soften it so that it doesn't offend the prevailing culture? Now look at what Paul said. We come to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That's our text for today, those two verses. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now what would you say about Billy Graham? Was Billy Graham in step with God? You may have a variety of opinions about that, but I think that we can say that obviously Billy Graham was used by God. He was, and by the way, Billy Graham was just as normal as any other person. You know, uh, one of the things you look, in, you look in the Bible, you look at the story of Elijah, and you think Elijah's this great man, and then you get over to the book of James, and James reminds us he was a man just like us, and yet God used him. Billy Graham is a man just like us, and yet God used him. Where is the Billy Graham of today? Well, it's certainly not me. I've been doing this for a long time. It's certainly not me. It's not anybody that I know right now. But maybe God has a Billy Graham he's going to raise up on the scene. Maybe God will raise someone up from this church. As you know, that's exactly what God did back in North Carolina. Uh, some people there decided their, their churches weren't, weren't doing well enough. Things weren't going well. So a group of them got together. I believe it was a group of North Carolina farmers who got together. One of them was Billy's dad, and they said, we're going to have a revival. And they invited this preacher, whose name was Mordecai Ham, to come and preach. And as he preached a sermon one night, down the aisle came this young man, who we now know was Billy Graham. God had a purpose for his life. But Billy Graham remained true to the gospel no matter who he was preaching to. Did you know that during the Reagan years, under the Reagan administration, Billy Graham went to Russia to preach. He went to the Soviet Union. The Reagan administration was opposed to his trip. The United States ambassador to Russia urged Billy Graham not to go. Vice President H. W. George H.W. Bush delivered the message to Billy Graham that he was discouraged from going because they were afraid that that the Russians would use Billy Graham's visit there as an opportunity, as a photo op, to demean the United States and that uh, it would be an embarrassment both to him and the United States. And some of the reporters of that day, Sam Donaldson, some of you will remember, uh, I believe he was of ABC News, and Dan Rather of CBS News, also were critical of Billy Graham, saying it's all about Billy Graham's ego that he wants to go to Russia. But Billy Graham said, it's not about my ego. It is about the call of God on my life to go and preach the gospel. And he went and he preached the gospel. There were some embarrassing moments, obviously some opposing moments when things were difficult. But later, eight years later, as a matter of fact, the Soviet Union was history. And while many people look back on President Reagan's speech when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. George H.W. Bush looked back on the trip that Billy Graham made into the Soviet Union in 1982 and said Billy Graham was able to see God at work. He was obedient to God. And God used his message. Billy Graham was not ashamed of the gospel. Should we be ashamed of the gospel? No, we shouldn't. 
What is the gospel? Well, it's the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of his birth and of his sinless life. And we looked at that sermon for several weeks that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And he said, you know that Jesus the Nazarene, this man who was attested by God with miracles and signs and wonders, just as you yourselves know, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. But God raised him up from the dead. That was the gospel that Paul preached. Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross, buried, raised again on the third day, appeared to his disciples, and then ascended to heaven. And the angel said of this same Jesus Christ, who was crucified as his disciples watched him go into heaven, this same Jesus, who you're now watching go into heaven, will come in just the same way. That's the gospel. Paul said... I have been, in the book of Romans, by the way, in the first verse, he said, I have been set apart for this gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's the good news. I serve God, he said, in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel. He said in that first chapter, I am eager to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. He said, I am not ashamed of this gospel. There is something supernatural about this gospel. The message must never change. Now, this is why. Whenever the gospel is preached, something happens in the hearts of those who hear it. They experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He convicts the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. Something happens when the gospel is preached. The Holy Spirit convicts men. People don't like to be convicted. You don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it when someone sticks their finger in my face and tells me I'm wrong, even if it is God. And what happens when the gospel is preached? The finger of God is pointed at my heart, and I chafe at the preaching of the gospel so that I either have to reject the message or reject the messenger or else bend my heart and my will to the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is God's message to men. This is God's mission to reach men. And this is God's method. And something remarkable happens when it's preached. Men, women, boys and girls come to an awareness of their sin and their need for salvation. And they sense the judgment of God hanging over their heads. Now, if the gospel does its work, does its work you will be at first made to feel hopelessly sinful and helpless to do anything about it. That is the intent of the gospel message. Here is the Son of God hanging on a tree. You did that. Your sin, that is how bad your sins and my sins are. You did that. Your sin nailed into the cross. You are guilty of that. And yet at the same time, this is the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. There are some things there that we can't even begin to grasp yet. But hopefully one day we will. That Jesus Christ died there on that cross for you. You're hopelessly sinful. Helpless to do anything about it. And if you sense that about yourself, that's God speaking to you and showing your need. And showing you the only answer for your need. And that is that there is saving power in this gospel. Your only hope is the gospel. But if you'll notice, the Bible says here that... The way you access this hope that's in the gospel 
is to believe. It is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes. I'm not sure we understand that word believe. I'm not sure we have a biblical conception of that word believe. And for that reason, I'm afraid that there are many people, even in the church, who are not saved because they don't understand what it means to believe. For instance, somewhere along the way, and, and some, some of us think that believing is giving mental assent to something. So let me use the table. By the way, the discipleship training class we're having is video-driven. Louis Giglio is teaching, don't give the devil a seat at your table. We've been talking, the Lord providentially brings tables into our conversation, so showing us that I think that this is timely. But let me use this table, for instance. So I tell you that this is a strong table. I make it my business to come here on Sunday and tell you that the Lord's Supper table is strong, that it is strong enough to hold you up, that you can put your full weight on it, that you can trust it, that anyone who puts their full weight on this table will never be disappointed, it will never let you down. And I ask you, how many of you believe that? And all of you raise your hand. You all have nodded in mental assent that you believe that. And so somebody tells you when you raise your hand and you say you believe the table will hold you up or you believe Jesus will hold you up, that you're saved. And so we come to church from Sunday to Sunday and you hear the preacher preach sermons about how strong the table is. And you say, oh, I believe that. And you sing songs about how strong the table is. And you say, oh, I believe that. You even tell people when you go by the table, oh, I testify that this is a strong table. But you yourself have never climbed up on the table yourself and rested yourself and your weight on that table. And until you do, you've never trusted that table. You've never believed in that table. And so, in, 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 in reference to the gospel, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can, with mental assent, say, I believe. You can raise your hand. Some pastor tells you you're saved because you raised your hand. You're not saved when you believe just by simply giving mental assent. But when you, by your hope, the hope of your heart, put yourself totally, your soul totally, in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, I am trusting you. I am putting all my weight, all my hope in you. And the Bible says that whoever hopes in him will never be disappointed. He will never let you down. I ask you, have you ever, ever in your life put your whole weight the weight of your whole heart and soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him and Him only for salvation. I know that's a bad illustration, but it's just an illustration of depending on Him and Him alone. Paul says in verse 17, For in this gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's a matter of faith from start to finish. There is nothing else I can do but believe. Now the impact of these two verses had the impact it had on a man named Martin Luther changed the course of history. Martin Luther, you may know nothing about him except that he wrote one of the hymns in our hymn book. A mighty fortress is our God, written in the 1500s, because he was a man of that day. That's a long time ago. So how can a man of the 1500s be relevant today? Well, let me tell you a little bit about his story. Martin Luther studied law. He appeared to be pretty successful moving in that direction, but Martin Luther also had a problem. He was burdened by the thought that one day he would die and have to meet God. And while he was in college, instead of feeling better about that, he only began to feel worse because two of his college friends died. 
And he knew one day that would happen to him. And under the weight of such a burden, he felt he could no longer pursue his law degree. And so he gave up law. And on August the 17th, 1505, Martin Luther entered a monastery, an Augustinian monastery to become a Catholic monk. And he said he did so not so much to become a monk, but so that he might, by becoming a monk, save his own soul. And the monks taught that the way to find God was through self-denial. So Luther fasted and he prayed. He devoted himself to menial tasks. He so devoted himself to the penance of confession, confessing even the most trivial sins, that his superiors on one occasion told him not to come back until he could find a sin that was worthy of confessing and repenting of. And while he had the reputation of being one of the most devoted monks that they had, he still had no peace with God in his heart. He had no peace with God because Luther had never believed the gospel. He never believed it because for him the gospel was about what he could accomplish, the points that he could earn, the favor that he could win with God by the things that he was doing through his own efforts. And so what happened to Luther? He went to Rome on business for the monastery. And while there, there was a set of steps that were said to be the very steps that were the steps to Pilate's palace. And pilgrims who came to Rome would climb these steps on their knees, praying on their way up. And on these steps, there were said to be stains, quote, this was said, whether it was true or not, Luther did this, believe this at the time that these stains on these steps were from the blood of Jesus as he ascended those steps and they would stop and pray on their knees climbing those steps on their knees and as Luther painfully climbed his way up trying to earn favor with God by hurting himself and punishing himself suddenly a verse from this passage very passage came to his heart of course it's originally in the book of Habakkuk Paul takes it up here in the book of Romans the just shall live by faith. And what was Luther doing? Luther was living by fear. He was living by fear. He was trying to earn his way to salvation. But the Bible said the just will live by faith. By fear, said Luther. There, I have to be afraid. I have to be afraid of God. I, these are their things I have to do. No, no, no. The Bible said by faith. And all at once, Luther grasped that. He understood that, that salvation was by faith. Faith alone, simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luther at once was free. But if he had not come to that moment, he would have spent all his life asking this question. And notice the emphasis that I put on it. What must I do to be saved? You might remember that Paul encountered a Philippian jailer in a moment of hopelessness and helplessness. And that Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul corrected his question with the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But believing is not just raising your hand for the preacher. Believing is putting your hope, your whole hope, and resting your whole soul on the Lord Jesus Christ and in what he did on that cross and the ones who hope in him will never be disappointed. So let's ask a question finally. What would Paul preach? 
let's say Paul came to the U.S. Senate today, stood before the Senate. What, would, what message would he give? Would it be a message of world peace? No, it would be the gospel. Let's say that Paul went to, to uh, the British Parliament and the Queen was present. What message would Paul present to the British Parliament and to the Queen? It would be the gospel. Let's say Paul could go and meet with Russia and, the, and, and, and meet in the Kremlin with Putin present. What message would Paul preach? It would be the gospel. Because Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes. Now the question is, what about you? Is that where you put your hope? Or are you putting your hope in what you put in the offering plate? Are you putting your hope in, I raised my hand, or I walked down the aisle, or Brother Eddie baptized me, or some other pastor baptized me. Your hope is in not that. Your hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray.